Hello, and welcome to Gifts of the Weird. I'm John, your host, and with me this episode is Winifred Hodge-Rose. Winifred is the author of Heathen Soul Lore Foundations, Ancient and Modern Germanic Pagan Concepts of the Souls. This project will be published as two volumes, the first of which will cover soul lore, theory, and history. That's the edition that just came out. And volume two will focus on applying soul lore to personal development and daily life. Winifred is the daughter of a U.S. diplomat and grew up in countries around the world during the 1950s and 60s. She attended a German high school and lived for years in Greece, giving her fluency in both German and Greek languages. Her academic degrees are in soil science and landscape ecology, watershed management, and political science. She worked with the U.S. Forest Service, Army Corps of Engineers, and the Department and in Department of Defense programs. She is technically retired, but Winifred has focused during the last decades on research and writing about soul lore and other heathen topics. She publishes in and now assists with producing Iduna, a journal for the Troth, an international heathen education organization, and on her website, heathensoullore.net. Her forthcoming book, Heathen Soul Lore, Ancient and Modern Germanic Pagan Concepts of the Souls, Theory and Practice, is due out in August 2021. And that is from the Troth Publications. Winifred, welcome to Gifts of the Weird. Thank you, John. Thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. And that is an impressive history there. Uh, growing up around the world, going to a German high school, living in Greece. That must have been a very exciting experience for a young woman. And especially at that time, uh, you said you said here 1950s and 60s, I'm not trying to pin you on to an age, but that was still when Europe was rebuilding after the war. So that was quite a time at that point. It was. It was. And my, my father, both my parents really were involved with that. And I think, by the way, my, my father was a, quite a linguist. He spoke 12 languages. Um, and so I've kind of tried to follow in his footsteps with some of my language studies. But I, I just wanted to say that that kind of upbringing in different cultures, and they really were different back then, uh, but it was in the U.S. That, I think that's part of why, uh, part of what's helped me try to grasp how ancient heathens uh, viewed the world, at least in certain aspects. I think that that was kind of a unique background that allowed me a window because I learned my languages through immersion, just trying to live the languages and live and think the way the people did in those countries um, where I lived. So just wanted to make that point. Yeah, and isn't it wonderful how learning different languages, I mean, I don't speak other languages flurry, and I'm really impressed with your father to be able to speak and converse in 12. Wonderful experience that must have been for him. And then you're being fluent in at least two, because you only admitted to two, but you might be fluent in more. <laughs> and I think, and I'll connect this, hey, I'm connecting this to the runes. Go figure me, a rune person. <laughs> um, when you learn different languages, it's all part of the stories and the culture and the people and where you are as well to get the nuances and the understandings. I was going to say, too, uh, um, it's not only my father. My mother uh, got a master's degree in psycholinguistics. She was one of the very first people who studied that. But that uh, she was looking at the effects of bilingualism on the personality and the question of whether people shift into a different personality when they speak a different language, if they're you know, bilingual in that language. Um, and I, th I think that's something else that plays in with trying to understand ancient cultures through their ancient languages. That's really interesting. What was briefly, I mean, yeah, we will get to your book at some point, but I'm really fascinated by this. What was her basic conclusion about that study? Uh, that uh, that we really do um, shift, and, and it may vary a good deal from person to person as to how great a shift it is. 
but but we do um, have a different mindset when we use a different language. And I can I can attest to that uh, from my own experience. For example, my first marriage was to a Greek man, and my children are half Greek and, and uh, grew up over there in Greece. So my children were bilingual too, and so was my first husband. But when we talked about rational things that require decision-making and analysis, we spoke in English. Whenever we got excitable about something, whether it was positive or negative emotions, we immediately switched into Greek and, you know, we're able to get thoroughly excited about whatever the issue was. Um, and that's just one example of and not only do you shift personality when you shift languages, but a, but having the ability to shift languages, I think, expands your the factors of your personality so that you can express more of yourself than you could if you only spoke one language. That's a that's an amazing uh, upbringing and for your children as well. That's really great. You mentioned earlier that uh, about how living in different countries and different languages, you connected that back to ancient peoples. And I guess that just kind of shows how widespread they were with having different societies and connections to different societies and people through their through their various ways of travel, either by raiding or by trading or by visiting and you know setting up establishments and all of that, and just how diverse even Norse and Germanic cultures were always. <laughs> Absolutely. And I got to experience some of that, uh, you know, as a child in the 50s, um, living in, in villages in northern Greece and, and other parts of the world. We lived in Bangladesh, too, and traveled quite a bit in India and uh, South, southern Africa and so forth. But back then, it, it, the dialect, you know, before before television, before radio, before everybody started listening to people pronouncing everything the same way and expressing everything the same way, I mean, literally going from village to village, you could notice dialectical differences. And, and you know, even a small region would be would be quite different, would tell different stories, would express themselves in different ways. And there's still there's still some villages in Greece that speak the Doric form of Greek that goes back before the Trojan War. And, and they've kept they've hung on to it. And that's that's true around the world. So uh, what your point of, about how uh, back in the earlier days of heathendom, um, people would have experienced uh, all these different cultures and, and dialects and languages. Uh, absolutely. I 100% agree with that. I really love it when we have these thoughts or when people talk about these things, and then we have even modern expressions of them. It's mm -hmm. really cool. Really cool. Wow. Well, we could probably go on for a very much long time talking about that stuff because that's really interesting to me. And you're inspiring me to really buckle down on listening to my foreign languages and getting those up to a little bit of a par. I'm a little bit older now, but I think it's still possible. Yes. <laughs> Winifred, this is really a great opportunity. I have been able to see you posting so many wonderful things and watching your talk uh, over Trothmoot. For my listeners who don't know, Trothmoot is a annual conference and meeting for the Troth Heathen Organization. And they had a lot of great speakers and, and it was held virtually again this year, which I think was a wonderful experience for so many people around the world. How did you get connected into heathenry? And what time of your life uh, did that kind of come into the fore for you? Yeah, it, it seems to me from what I've heard from other heathens, I've had a slightly different uh, track than many heathens have uh, coming into that. It was right around when I turned 40, so it was probably part of a midlife crisis. 
um, I guess that's the shape my own particular one took. And I was um, a, quite a devoted Episcopalian Christian. Um, I sang in the choir and was very dedicated to that and, and studied a lot of uh, Christian theology and history. Um, I was interested in it back then, too. But I started having issues with the lack of the feminine in the, in the divine expression. And I also had a lot of issues, you know, being an ecologist with the Christian perspective that humans are a special creation, that they stand outside the rest of nature. And that I just didn't agree with it. That didn't feel true to me. So the final um, tipping point was was kind of an odd one. I, I had a Jewish friend who took a trip to Israel. And when he came back, he wanted to tell me all about it. He said, I know you'll be very interested to hear about all the holy places I visited. And I thought to myself, why would I be interested in those holy places? And and then I thought to myself again, well, he knows I'm Christian. So of course, for Christians, that is, there are holy places there. And Again, this is all to myself because I was being very polite and not thinking this out loud. I said to myself, these are not my holy places. And so that got me, of course, I finished the conversation with my friend, but it got me started thinking, well, you know, if these Christian places are not my true holy places, what are? And I thought a lot, a lot about that. I did a lot of visioning and, you know, the 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 old structures of Northern Europe just came up like, you know, a Stonehenge and Karnak and, and the cave things and and even the, the old cathedrals and shrines, particularly the small shrines kind of tucked away. And, you know, and it got me thinking, well, what was it about Christianity that I really liked and felt rooted in so much? And the more I looked into them, it was it, they all had pagan roots, all the things that mattered to me, the the, the seasonal celebrations, um, the, a lot of the myths and so forth. I, I realized how many of them had carried over from heathen times. And I thought, well, you know, let me look further back. So I started reading more about old beliefs. But the funny thing was, I was not that enthused about the Norse uh, tradition. I, I had read the stories as a child. Um, I was a ver- voracious reader, but but I, you know, I wasn't, uh, many heathens say, oh, you know, that really spoke to me, and they didn't. You know, I it felt very two-dimensional to me that the deities didn't feel real. But then I started having dreams of them, of Odin and Frau Holle, and, uh, you know, strange dreams, and, and somehow... Uh, suddenly they started, they turned into three dimensions. And I still wasn't sure whether I liked them. You know, I was trying to do this supermarket thing where you get to pull, pick and choose, you know, what, what you like. Oh, I'll, I'll put a box of this DD in my basket and a, and a box of the other one in. <laughs> and I don't mean to be insulting toward that because I know many people find that a very satisfying uh, route to follow. Um, but it wasn't the one that I was called to. And I was pretty much told that by the deities that, you know, it, take us or leave us kind of thing. Mm. And, yeah. Uh, and, and you, you know, in, instead of running away from what I didn't like or papering over it, um, we need to just sit down and talk and have me understand better. So so that got me moving in that direction. But what finally shifted me over was reading Bauschatz, The Well in the Tree, that's the full title of that is something about world and time uh, in um, in old heathen belief. And I, I had always wanted to study philosophy, except that I never liked the philosophy that I was presented with in college. I, I mean, it was interesting, but I didn't feel like it really expressed the truth that I was looking for. And finally, when I started looking into the ideas that Bauschatz presented, it was, this is a philosophy I can really buy into. These understandings of what time is, what reality is how we as individuals interface with uh, with larger realities. So 
after that, it was full steam ahead, and it still is. Wow, that's quite <laughs> quite a journey. Well, and you know, and I think it's a journey that a lot of people parallel. It seems that people get an interest, and then the, the gods start speaking to us, or their representatives start speaking to us, and we kind of start exploring a little bit that way and then and then it's not it's not it's i don't think it is a negative to say oh i'm gonna try a little bit of you know i'm gonna put this like you said in the basket (laughs) so it's great i i kind of like that that analogy that's a fun one so uh, you mentioned uh, in your official bio that in the early 90s you joined the organization called the troth and you also kind of, I guess that kind of set you on a path of meeting other people of a similar religious background and a religious practice. And uh, what was that like uh, at the beginning as you started exploring and meeting other and connecting to other people? That must have been a very exciting opportunity to meet folks. I, th- I think it, w- it was a really interesting time to get involved in heathenry. And in fact, um, my initial involvement uh, was as much or more with, with other groups and independent heathens as it was uh, with the troth. And the, the first meeting I went to was, uh, well, Burgess 94. Those were the ones I, I first got to know. And then uh, a little later in the summer, I went to the East Coast All Thing, which I think was different than the East Coast All Thing that they have now. I mean, different people involved again. So so I did. I got to know many uh, just regional uh, kindreds and People, the Theodish people, people who later branched off into and, and went in many different directions. And I, I think that was very enriching for me. Um, but it was also my first year uh, that I was heathen that I started Frigga's Web. And you're very right about the, the, the Internet. Um, I started Frigga's Web as a round robin letter between <laughs> five, five people. A round robin is, is you write a letter, you put it in an envelope, you send it to the next person who adds an, a letter to the envelope and sends it to the next person. So it goes around in a circle. When it gets back to you again, you take your letter out and put a fresh letter in. Um, and back back in the day, our family used to communicate that way, our, our widespread family. And um, that's how I started with uh, with Frigga's Web too. But one of the people who was involved was uh, had a great talent for um, journalism. And so she started our, our journal, Lena, um, and that really brought people together and expanded expanded Frigga's web. And that is something I would like to talk about. We can do it either now or later on, as you please. Oh, yeah, let's uh, now while, while it's fresh in our minds. Okay. So I felt that Frigg Frig was really pressing me into Frigga's web and, and the other people involved. One, one of the main people who was very involved uh, almost from the beginning was Rod Landreth, who also was very close to Frigg. And the idea with Frigga's web was to create, uh, it was called a Frithstead for all heathen folk. And the idea was to create common ground where people with different attitudes and backgrounds and even agendas, the idea was that they were supposed to park those at the gate. And when they come into the Frithstead, uh, this is virtual, of course, uh, in our minds, uh, then what we're focusing on is what we have in common rather than what differentiates us. And in particular, the um, the domains of life that Frigg is most involved with. So we had different different halls, we call them, or guilds, where people could focus on what they were interested in. We had frith weaving, um, we had childbirth and child rearing, family life, marriage, ancestors, crafts, homemaking. And many, many people uh, joined Frigga's Web. I think in terms of membership at that time, it was one of the very biggest groups. And there was a lot of overlap with Throth members as well. But but what I liked about it was that there were so many independent heathens who didn't feel comfortable in other groups or having particular labels put on them in terms of what kind of heathenry they practiced. 
um, this was a place where people felt uh, safe to come and just interact with each other, knowing that you know they they might disagree about some things. But as I said, those things were parked at the gate. You could pick them up when you go out from Frigga's Web. But while you're at Frigga's Web, the focus was on what we share in common. And I think what that did. One of the questions you asked me to think about was how uh, how things have changed and grown uh, mm-hmm. since, since the early years. And I th- I think. Um, that Frigga's Web uh, deserves a good deal of credit, certainly not only Frigga's Web, many other influences as well, but but this was definitely one of them. Because be- before that, I remember laughing, uh, talking to the men at the at the early moots that I went to, and they all complained there weren't any heathen women. You know, they had to go and raid the, the, the Wiccans and the, and the you know, neo-pagans to try to get girlfriends and wives. And they, they were, they were really quite incensed about this and, and felt that it was a, a big drawback to them being heathen because of that. Um, and once we got Frigga's web going, I mean, that, that was one of the incentives. Well, because, you know, I and the few other women felt like saying, well, yeah, we can see why there aren't very many women. <laughs> yep. We can definitely see why. And Frigga's Web was intended to change that and did. And and one of the exciting things about it was how enthusiastic the men were as well. You know, I, I thought perhaps we might have an, a preponderance of women, but if anything, uh, there were even more men, probably just because there were more heathen men, period, uh, than, than there were women. But but the men were just as eager as the women to have a broadening of the heathen culture that, you know, and I don't mean to look down on, on the warrior aspect and the Viking aspect and so forth, because that has its strengths, certainly. Uh, but that's not all of life. And many people don't really relate to that. Some women do, some men do, but many women and men don't, and certainly children as well. And that was another thing was that Frigga's Web really brought in the children. And, you know, we, we tried to build the uh, children's activities into our get-togethers and, and things we did. And, and nowadays it's taken for granted, but it wasn't then. I mean, and just as an example of, you know, again, it was a very uh, early effort at inclusivity that doesn't include nearly as many aspects or, or uh, sophistication as, as we're working on now. Uh, but just as one example, as far as I know, I'm the first person who instituted the idea of having a non-alcoholic choice of beverage during bloats. And I started that when I started uh, offering frig, frig bloats at uh, Troth Mood and the other moods that I went to. And people were really appreciative of that because before they had had to just, um, you know, just pass uh, if they if they needed to avoid alcohol. And that's a small thing, but but it does it does make people who for whom alcohol is an issue it it helps them feel included. And and you know that was kind of the idea of of Frigga's Web is to expand the common ground we share among us. That's a lot of a lot of work and a lot of great. St- activity to make those available, those options available to people. And, and yeah, I mean, I, the round robin letter thing, <laughs> yeah, that was fun. it's an interesting, and it takes a while for those letters to get all the way around the full circle. Cause depending on how many people are in your, your net there, you know, it's someone gets it and then they take a couple of days, add their own, and then they forward it on. And then it takes a couple more days. So, I mean, you could be looking at a month before it came full circle, depending oh, yeah, that, in fact, that would probably be pretty fast. And and the other real drawback was that you know people uh, sometimes drop the ball. Oh, 
But, yeah, I, I remember as a teenager and, and my cousins and I had, we, we were living in various different places in the world and my cousins and I started one and, and it was going fine for a while. And I'm, I must admit, I dropped the ball at one point and I felt very guilty about it <laughs> for years. That was a long time ago. But, but that well, thanks, thanks for creating Frigg's Web. I mean, it sounds like that was something that migrated over into the earlier days of Internet. Uh, at the time, and then did, yes. Now we're now we have uh, other ways of connecting, and I just uh, since we were talking about changes, I wanted to just mention one other one that um, a sort of historical change in modern heathenry that at least in in my personal experience, maybe other people have had different ones, but but um, as as we've become more and more internet enabled, it seems like uh, we've become less um, you know physically interactive. And and I know a lot of heathens nowadays uh, have local pub moots and things like that, which which I think is really great. But I don't hear of as many uh, you know campouts and kind of um, you know rough country, you know cook on a stick over the fire kind of uh, activity, which which I I so much enjoyed. It seems it just seems to me this is sort of a cultural observation is is that the more stuff we do online, the less involved we get physically with things. That that was my point, right? <laughs> Well, let's move on to your work with soul lore and studying the soul and the Germanic version of the soul and what that means. And of course, talking about your book. And you you, you gave me a review copy, a draft copy of the book, and I looked through it and it's a very in-depth book and very, I don't mean this negatively, but it's very dense with information. There's a lot there and a lot of meaty stuff to grasp onto. So there's just so much. So how long has it taken you to gather this information or to experience it? And then, and uh, how in the world did you ever happen to be able to organize your thoughts well enough to put it down in a, in a, in a book that progresses? <laughs> well, well, it all boils down to time. This is, I have spent an awful lot of time on this. Even before I solidly got into heathenism, I was practicing um, uh, shamanic journeying um, and, uh, you know, exploring the life of the souls that way. And and so that was one thread that fed into it. And another one was just wanting to learn the old languages. I started with Anglo-Saxon and trying as much as I could to do it by immersion. I would just pick up texts in Anglo-Saxon and read them, which is how I learned to read Greek too. I, I, I read signs on the stores and I just would look at a newspaper and pick out one word out of 10 that I understood. And then the next day I might understand, you know, one word out of eight and just keep going like that. And I listened to uh, people reciting Beowulf and started getting into it. And then, um, then the same with some of the other languages. And so my original intention was to write some articles about uh, shamanism, uh, you know, trying to find traces of shamanism in Anglo-Saxon heathenry. And I realized they weren't going to be overt, they were going to be hidden. And so I was looking at words uh, that might have referred to shamanic activities in Anglo-Saxon. And I found some, and I, I published uh, some of that work that I did um, is on my website in an article called um, An Anglo-Saxon Charm Against a Dwarf, Shape-Shifting, Soul Theft, and, and uh, Soul, uh, what was it, Soul Retrieval or Soul Healing. Uh, but the, I realized when I did that, the, the utmost importance in anything having to do with shamanism of understanding what souls and spirits actually are. Because that's what shamans work with. The spirits work through the shamans. The shamans work through the spirits. They work on the souls of other people. 
they have to protect and heal their own souls and other people's souls, um, that that's the whole materia with which they work. So if I wanted to understand any traces of shamanism, first I had to understand what Anglo-Saxon heathens envisioned the soul to be. And so I, I started the same way. By, I read through the entire dictionary, which I already had done once, looking for shamanic words. And this time I went through there and looked for words that might relate to aspects of, of the soul. And then I started doing that with the other language, old language dictionaries. Um, so old Saxon, Gothic and old Norse and made it. So then I started comparing across the languages. If I found a word that existed in all of the, all of the main languages, the old uh, Germanic languages, if I found a word that had pretty much the same meaning and did exist across those languages, I felt like I had found, you know, something that could be considered a root, a soul root in uh, heathen thinking. Um, and that's how I proceeded. Well, that's how I began. So I made a whole great big list and graph and and I, I listed these different soul characteristics and checked them off in boxes. Uh, you know, it was looked very official and academic. <laughs> But the thing was, I realized that when I read these dictionaries, the dictionaries consist of what modern people, scholars, think those words meant. Okay, And so I wanted to form my own idea because I didn't know if I would agree with them or not. So that meant I had to read these words in the old texts. And back then when I was doing this, they weren't available on the Internet. So I, I have access to a university library and I got, you know, the thousand plus pages of Alfred's Catholic homilies and skimmed through all the pages, you know, just looking for the words, the keywords. And when I found them, you know, then I would read the text and take notes. And, and I did that for, you know, most of, you know, for the versions of the Bible that were available in these different languages and poetry and whatever I could find. So this was years of work. Mm -hmm. And that, so that was the beginning. And then I started getting more and more of an idea. And then I did the same thing looking in folklore and looking in traces in folklore, especially threads that were in common across the different Germanic uh, cultures and, you know, started weaving all of that together. And then I started, you know, noticing these things in myself, these descriptions of our inner self. It's like, well, yeah, I've got one of those or, <laughs> you know, I recognize this and, and you know, you know, one of them, it came, it really struck me um, as a child. I was very immersed in this particular soul, my Fera soul, and and that all the feeling of magic in my childhood came through that soul. That's just one example. So I started writing and publishing in Iduna, and that my first soul or article in this series was published in 2006. Well, I can only imagine what your library must look like. Does it look like a uh, Trinity library? I mean, with all of these books and tables and lamps and stuff. I mean, what a wonderful place. Well, you know, one of the reasons my husband and I realized that we were kindred spirits was when we discovered, we, we both had enormous libraries and we discovered that we had a lot of the same books in our library. Oh, wow. That's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> Before we move on, I just want to do a little bit of a plug. You mentioned going to the universities and studying uh, some of their academic work. So I totally encourage people to do that. And I like to always plug and promote interlibrary loan as an option for any books that are out of print, too expensive or academic in nature. Most of the time you can go to a local library and uh, through interlibrary loan, borrow a book from another library, even across the country. I've done that a couple of times already. So... I might mention too that it's uh, it's exciting how much of the older material is is now available both online and and also as uh, ebooks.
Okay, so we've been teasing people for thirty-ish hmm, minutes or so uh, about the, the title of the episode is Soul Lore, and we've talked about everything but the soul itself, I guess. <laughs> Uh, why don't we talk a little bit about that? So going through your book, you've identified several, I don't know, what, what do you call them? Aspects or personalities or parts of the soul. And um, you have some really nice descriptions of them. For me, uh, reading through it, uh, a couple of times I had to go back and forth because some of them kind of I'm still a little confused by. <laughs> oh, really? What a surprise. <laughs> well, it's just uh, for me, it kind of seemed... Uh, it seems to me it's, it's the book is well written it's just processing it in my own mind and and um separating them out and seeing them and and experiencing them. i guess it's because i'm a the way that i learn things is experiencing and reading and auditory I'm, <laughs> writing is great oh, no no and i was teasing uh, when i said that before i was being so uh, teasing myself uh, making fun of myself because i i know it's uh, very big and complex and and i might uh, put in a plug for the the book here because I totally understand about learning in different ways. I think we need to do that. And even, um, you know, we each have particular ways that we learn most easily, but it's also important to to expand that as much as we can and learn in different ways. And I've tried to incorporate that in my book so that the, um, so that in the title, it says theory and practice. Um, Mm -hmm. So in part one of my book, well, I have an introductory and I'll talk about that in a minute. But just to make this point here, and then in in part one, I talk about soul lore theory, and and I have a chapter or more than one chapter on each of the souls. And then in part two, I have what started out as as study guides, what are study guides on my website. And those are guides into experiential learning of the souls. And I get into, um, I talk a lot about the imagination and about uh, about our mindset that we, we have to realize that it is possible to know experientially. Um, we don't have to prove things scientifically, especially things like the soul. I mean, I, I use the analogy, you know, when, when you're crossing a bridge, you want it to be scientifically proven that that bridge is going to hold you. But when you're um, dealing with, with these uh, uh, inner things, uh, the only thing that really matters is, is your personal experience. You know, proof, proof, scientific proof is it's just not necessary. It's irrelevant. Um, so, so I have, um, I, I even get into body feelings about the souls and how to explore the souls through through body feeling um, and imagining yourself. Uh, uh, I, I spend a lot of time talking about exploring the souls through sensation and discovering which sensations you can go deepest through, um, whether it's a proprioception, sight, uh, hearing, the sense of touch. For myself, I I do a lot of my exploring through flavors, which people might not think of as a way to explore your soul or your body or any other way, except babies. Babies love doing it that way. They put, they put everything in their mouth when they exactly. get it. Exactly. And that's a, actually, it's a very good way of learning about things. It's just not always very safe. <laughs> right. So, for example, when, uh, you know, some of the souls are, are, well, all of the souls are rooted in our body and some, some are very focused in our body. And I give the example of scanning for the health of those souls. And I, so I, I, I go into meditation and I run through my body and my imagination and I pay attention to what my sense of flavor is telling me. If it, if it changes from a tasty flavor to a yucky flavor or it loses flavor, 
that tells me that that part of my body-soul connection, there's something wrong with it, and I need to pay attention to that. So that's that's just an example of uh, what you were saying about different ways of learning. And I've, I've tried to offer a lot of different ways in this book, which is one of the reasons it's so dense. And, and you did. I think the what's really, just from my own personal experience of reading this so far, is that the part two, the practice, is going to be, I think, essential to the comprehension and understanding. And for me, I think once I can sit down, take the experiences and go through them, and it's going to take some time to do all of them. You can't just do it in a weekend, right? Right. (laughs) And I think that will really help out a lot. And uh, so once I get to go, and the other thing is, is I read it on on a tablet. And for me, I'm still, I like pages and books. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of people say, especially when it's complicated. And then I've got, um, you know, some tables and charts and so forth. And it's going to, by the way, I should say this right now, it's going to have a lot of illustrations, which I really hope will um, add another dimension of understanding to what I'm trying to say. And in particular, I want to um, raise a horn to uh, my fellow heathen, Dale Wood, who um, is providing, um, I think at this count, close to 20 of his original uh, paintings to illustrate the book, which I think are very... um, very inspiring and evocative. They're just some of them are just landscapes, but they speak to the soul, as far as I'm concerned. So that's yet another way of communicating, which um, nobody has seen yet except me and Dale. And uh, I hope it's going to enhance enhance a, a grasp of the book for many different uh, for people who think and approach things in different ways. Um, I'm approaching soul lore differently than most modern Western people do. You you talked about it's hard uh, for you to know what word to use. And I'm, I'm using the word souls because I really do believe that these are not soul parts. They are actual beings. They are spirit, spirit beings um, and that we consist of a, of a group of them. So, so let me uh, just say a word on that whole approach. I've given a name to these two different theories that I can identify about how people consider souls. One of them is the psychological theory of souls, which I think started with Aristotle and has influenced uh, culture ever since then and still does. And, and and in that one, you you sort of see these soul parts. Well, you've got your memory and your emotions and, you know, maybe your your drive or your motivations, your willpower and so forth. And these are all parts of the soul and they they work together, but they're all part of one whole and they they are not standalone things. They can't function on their own. See, I came in from a completely different direction, not from from philosophy, not from monotheistic religion and not from science. I came in from shamanism, which which recognizes the existence of spirits. And so my approach, I call it the existential theory of the souls. And and I call it that because I think they exist as individual beings. And the way I describe ourself is we have a self, okay, and we have a sense of selfhood. And in our everyday mind, we say that our self has a soul. That's how we look at it. I think from the point of view of what I've learned in soul lore, the truth is that, that we have a bunch of souls and that those souls together create our self. I say that they, our self is a song and it's sung into being by our souls. Mm. And so, so really our selfhood depends on all of these different souls interacting together. The selfhood is here for our one lifetime here in Midgard. And I, I envision the selfhood like, uh, a hologram, so that when after we die, um, a number of our souls, I believe, do survive in various different modes after death, and they each retain a hologram of 
the selfhood that we had while we were alive. So, so that's the point that that it, these are not soul parts; these are these are actual individual beings. And and I think among the indications that this is a valid way of looking at things is. I mean, how often have you argued with yourself, right? <laughs> yes, how a lot of times. <laughs> have you sworn, I'm not going to do that again, or I, or I promise I'm going to do that, and then you don't do that? Or it's like, well, I really want to, but but I don't really want to, or I think I really want to, but then I never do it, so that must mean that I don't really want to. And it goes, it goes on and on, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's just one clue that there's more than one thing there inside of us doing all these soul soulful things it's it's more of a group and they don't always interact uh, in the most efficient and uh, cordial ways funny that you say that because yeah sometimes we do get quite interactive with ourselves for sure okay well i'll just do like a one sentence uh, a review of the ones the souls that that i've identified here i think that the um the pharaoh F-E-R-A-H is, I've given it the old Saxon term. I, that that's that soul is the, the life force. It connects us with all the life force in Midgard. It also is a soul through which uh, godly powers come. And it, it um, I, I call it born of trees and lightning. Born of trees and thunder is, is the title of the chapter because uh, it's it's connected with the ancient, the proto-Indo-European words for the thunder god and the life force and the oak tree and the strike are all basically the same word. Um, and, and it shows how old it is. So so that's one of them. Uh, then there's the the there's the ama, which is also it's it's related to the word owned and adam. And these are the this is the sacred breath. This is like the primal spirit that comes from the deities. And I believe that, you know, based on all the research I've done, that this uh, this primal spirit, uh, it arises from Genunga Gap and from Fergalmir. It's like the mist rising up uh, from the from the cauldron of world energy that comes out. And I think that um, when we're born, a one or more deities, and not only our own deities, but uh, other people's deities too, uh, we'll take a portion of this ama or this owned adam and shape it uh, in a soul skin, and this is our ghost, our ghost soul, which uh, as which is the Germanic term for the word spirit that comes mm-hmm. from the Latin. Um, so basically, that's our spirit, but it's shaped so it has a personality and boundaries. And there's an analogy between you know what you might call the 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 Godhead or the source of holiness that's that has no individual characteristics. It's just uh, it's just primal being. Uh, so that's like the ama. And then our personal deities, you know, who have personalities, who have their own limitations and perspectives. That's like our ghost. Um, so so I think they're you know they're the same as us. They're also wrapped in the soul skin that takes the the primal spirit and shapes them except that they're a lot bigger and more powerful than we are, but they still have this this limiting and personifying shape. Okay, so then the next one, speaking of shapes, is our Hama soul, uh, which is related to, uh, this, which is how our body is formed. Um, and uh, when the three, when Odin and his brothers gave the gifts of life to uh, the trees, Ask and Embla, um, that was one of the gifts. That was the La, Liter, and uh, Lati that they gave uh, to ask an embla, it was the hamasol. So that gives a human appearance, the human ability, all of our physical abilities, including uh, speech and thinking, and being able to interact with each other, and very importantly, being able to recognize each other's individuals. Mm-hmm. So our entire social structure is built on the abilities of the of the hamasol. 
And then the elder soul is given by the Norns. It's it carries our our Orlog with us. In in the story in the in the story in the um in the Voluspa when the gods uh, turn trees into humans, it's immediately followed by the Norns giving them uh, a speaking fate for them speaking Orlog. And I think that's part of humanity is this gift of of Orlog, which means our life and time. Our our elder soul is our is our time soul, our time body. There's a lot of philosophy wrapped up in that that I think is fascinating, but I won't get into that too much. Uh, and then, so those are the those are the more God given human spirit type of souls that we have. And then there are some that I call the daemon souls, um, the the huger and the mode. And the huger, I believe, is is the soul which reincarnates. I think it's an ancestral soul that has the the memories, uh, the emotions, the motivations uh, that carry over from life to life. I think also our Alfar and our Desir are ancestral spirits. When we interact with them, it's their Hugur souls that we're interacting with through our own Hugur souls. Um, and the mode, I believe, was originally a, um, a nature elemental, uh, which started hanging out with humans and other animals too, and deities, and gradually became incorporated uh, into the human solar system. That's S-O-U-L-A-R system, solar system. Yeah, I like that term. Yeah, <laughs> that <was> really cool. <laughs> yep, and and uh, so uh, this uh, this mode soul brings a lot of the the strength of the elemental powers of nature with us, the, our our willpower and our, and our ability to excel, to overcome difficulties, and so forth. Um, and then there's the Siwelo soul, which is the actual word that comes down into modern English as soul, Siwelo, Sewola, and so forth. And that one, that's our soul that lives in hell. Um, and when we envision the hell region and the, and the beings there, those are our Siwalo souls. It's like the psyche in the, in the ancient Greek uh, lore. They're also complicated. I think I probably better stop there. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, and that's kind of what we wanted. We just want, I just wanted to have just kind of a basic, yeah. And it is hard to distill it down to a few words for each. <laughs> say um before i forget and we're probably coming to this now you know we i have the book coming out but i realize not everyone can afford a book and sometimes people would prefer to read things online rather than on paper so i do want to say all the material except for the illustrations all the material in the book is also available online so if people can't afford it they can still find it on my website i want to make sure that it can reach everyone who wants to be reached by it Oh, yeah, no, that's that's wonderful that you're doing that. And it's nice to have it in this book format as well. Uh, one of the things that I was really interested in was the the connections that you made to hell and and that aspect of things. You you had several chapters dealing with that. Was there something did something just really reveal yourself about that soul or? Yes. You- A lot of people have asked me what. Why did I write about them and study them in the order that I did? And I would have thought if I'd sort of chosen a logical order, I, I would have started with the Siwalo because that's the word that became modern soul. So it would make sense to trace that one. But I kept hearing, you know, I think my Huger has been driving a whole lot of my soul lore. It's, it's been helping me find knowledge and understanding. And so I, I've gotten orders all along as to what order I'm supposed to put things in. And so I followed that. Um, and I thought, Sai, well, that there would be so little about that, that I would just, I didn't even know if I had enough material for a full article about it, because it's really only the afterlife soul. It's not involved in our emotions, in our thinking, you know, it just in our personality or, or anything like that. It just, it comes into its own afterlife. And I think before life too, I, th- I think it continues to exist in hell. 
uh, in between lifetimes and, and, you know, resurges for each new life. So anyway, I started, uh, and there's not very much um, evidence in the lore for a heathen understanding of the soul. Now, I wrote a whole chapter about how Christianity changed the viewpoints of everything. And in fact, the illustration I'm using for that chapter uh, is is the famous one where uh, the Emperor Charlemagne had the uh, the Irminsul pillar of the mm. Saxons uh, chopped down. And I'm and I'm calling that caption or the caption for that illustration is the felling of the Irminsul um, instead of the Irminsul. The Sul is a pillar, spelling it S O U L. Because when Christianity came in, it required an entire reconstruction of everything that was understood about the soul. Mm-hmm. So so I thought there just wouldn't be much left for me to find about the Siwala soul until I started writing. And it just exploded, exploded in me. And when that happened was when I decided to use alchemy as kind of my frame of reference for understanding this soul. And again, I don't know that I can do a thumbnail description, but but alchemy is so, uh, you know, it has it has scientific aspects, but it is it is expressed so symbolically and so mythically, and I think our Siwalo soul and the, the whole region of hell—I call it—I call it the hidden land, the, the place of treasures and mystery. And I think so much of our tales and our folklore are about this this liminal space where Siwalo lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I also have a section where I call—I talk about backdoor connections between hell and the the worlds of the deities and of the living. It's not nearly as impermeable as we think it is. So anyway, what happened was the Siwalo simply ran away with me, my own Siwalo, you know, working through my other soul's cognition abilities. It just so I wrote, what is it, three three articles on the, the alchemy of hell. I, and I wrote the soul in the sea and the hell dweller. Um, and yeah, it just took off and there's more to come. Oh, excellent. <laughs> There's there's a definitely a an interest in learning more about Helheim and, and Goddess Hell and um, working with her and in that space. So this is this hopefully will be really a great way to start some connections with that uh, pending yeah. works coming out. Let, let me uh, mention a little because you mentioned Hell as a deity. And although I don't work closely with her, I, I see her, you know, there's also the Walburga and, and some of the other uh, Frau Holle, uh, different perspectives on her. But, you know, I believe, and I wrote about it in these Siwalo articles, that Audumla, the, the Ur cow, the Ur mother, uh, the cow who licked uh, the god free and, and fed Emir with her milk, the giant Emir, um, I think that she, she underwent a voluntary sacrifice and transformed herself into the world of hell. I think that's where it came from. And that her, her motherly and nurturing abilities created what I call, this is the womb of souls, that hell is the womb of souls. I think that's where souls arise. And that um, she still continues, uh, her, her awareness continues to permeate the world of hell and to emerge in the goddesses and, and gods too in, in other um, religious traditions. But uh, they emerge, her, her, her primal energies emerge through these deities of the underworld. So, and I, and, and um, Dale Wood has done a lovely watercolor painting of, of Adumla kind of melting into the world of hell. Oh, that sounds really interesting. I'm looking forward to reading about that again. <laughs> so part two of your of your book is the experiential part. Do you have any recommendations on how one might consider 
approaching those aspects of it. I'm, I'm not going to say this is how one should do it, but how one can consider it. So should they go in the order of the book or should they kind of maybe do a meditation to find out which soul is speaking to them and starting there? Uh, and that might take them in a whole different order. Uh, or do you think it's best to just go from uh, starting with Farah and moving forward? Um, no, I think I, I agree with uh, the latter thing that you said. I, I think it's good to go with um, your own instincts that where they're leading you. I, I do recommend reading the the first uh, chapter in part two, which talks about the, the procedure, the process, and the skills that are needed and the, and the mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so that's just to get people started. But then I agree that, uh, you know, one approach that could be made is in, uh, in uh, chapter one, um, definition and overview of heathen souls. I have just a, a paragraph or two about each soul. So somebody could just read read the, that overview and in a meditative way and sort of see which soul kind of draws them or which one seems most interesting or most important to them at this point in time. And then um, they could go turn to part two and find the chapter on that soul and also read about that soul in, in part one, but that particular one, and then go on with the exercises in part two. So excuse me, I, I agree with doing it that way. And in fact, um, Dale Wood also uh, did some of the soul exercises and he started right off with a combination of souls rather than just doing one at a time. That's how it worked for him. He combined his Pharaoh and his ghost uh, and Amma all together into an exercise and it you know, was really amazing. So definitely people should go with, uh, with what their own souls are telling them to do or calling them to do. And also talk a lot about working with ancestors as part of this process. Uh, what do you think is a good way to bring our, our own ancestry and the people that, that help form who we are today? Yeah, a couple things on that that I've sort of mentioned. One of them is I would really encourage people to, to learn some, if at all possible, some of the ancient words that might uh, pertain to the souls in their um, ancestral languages, and and not even necessarily just the souls, but but anything sort of soulful, uh, you know, inspiring, uh, having to do with the inner self in any way. To try to find so if you know if you're coming from um, if your ancestry is primarily um, uh, Northern European or Germanic culture, then uh, then the words that I offer in the book are going to be useful to you. But if you have some branches of your ancestry that come from elsewhere. You might like to uh, try to do some research to find out just a few words. You know, for an example, I think a lot of the African languages have very interesting words for relating to the souls that show up in in some of the modern um, renditions of the religions such as Vudun and, and Santeria and so forth. The same with Native Americans, same with uh, many of the Asian traditions. And I would I would encourage uh, people if they have any ancestral connections in those directions to not overlook those connections, uh, because I would say that those words could be doors of power for them. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, wherever you're coming from, and many, uh, many of us have uh, many different strands, and it's, uh, it's, it's really interesting to uh, try to follow some of those, those strands. So the other thing I would say in terms of ancestral work is to go back to what I said about the Hoover soul. I think that when when we're interacting with our ancestors, we are interacting Hoover to Hoover specifically. Mm. The Hoover not only carries our many of our mental powers, but also our, our emotional powers and the connections of the heart and the thought of the heart, mysteries of the heart also are, are very much um, part of the Hooger soul. So 
if if ancestral work is um, of of particular interest to a person, they might want to you know start the study of the Huger and you know follow up through those doors. I just I feel like the Huger has been the door through which so much of my information has come and my understanding. That sounds like a great great place to start. Then and I love that term you use that these these words can be doors of did you say doors of power? Yeah, doors into your power. Yeah, beautiful. Well, Winifred, we have been talking for quite a while, and we've covered a heck of a lot, and I'm really thrilled with this. Oh, one of the things that um, I was going to wrap us up, but then I, I looked down on my notes, and I and I saw um, something that you wrote in there, and I think this is very powerful and very – let me see if I – I'm going to try to get to the right page so I can quote it properly – it really empowered me. Uh, it's something that I already feel and I and believe, and I love the way that you said it, though. So this is from uh, one of the exercises. Uh, it says, you can see from this that we won't be dealing with right or wrong answers. Such attitudes are beyond pointless for soul or study. In fact, they will massively get in your way. And I love that. <laughs> We are not seeking certainty or absolute irrefutable truth here. We are seeking understandable self-knowledge and experience. And I really love that you qualified this so that we don't get in, so that we, as we're studying this, don't try to, don't fall into what I think is a a box. Oh, it has to be this way or else it's quote unquote wrong, or I'm not doing it right, or that other person has the wrong idea because we're all dealing with our souls and it's different for each person. Well, and I, I say that in a, a number of different ways uh, all through my writing, in, including on the introductory page of my, um, of my website, uh, you know, that making that, that very point, I, I use a little analogy too. I say, you don't want to build a, a fortress of certainty in your mind about any, about these ideas, because you're going to be constantly defending it against the attacks of new ideas. And I say, in, instead, uh, you, instead of certainty, you want to pursue understanding because understanding doesn't feel threatened by new ideas. It feels nourished by them. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And there's a bunch of other ways I've tried to make the same point and using uh, different analogies. Yeah. Wonderful. Since you mentioned your website, let's talk a little bit about it. What What do you have on there? And what are some of the things that you're continuing to work on for future? Yeah. Um, well, the website, at, I've has um, you know, all my solar writing, but it also has lots of other writing that I've done, all, all heathen oriented, um, including um, topics um, topics such as Orlog and, and Weird and quite a bit of writing about the, the deities. I've got a lot of poetry and songs and God calls, and I've even got the beginning of a, of a novel that I'm writing about uh, Grither, uh, who is the mother of Vidar. Mm-hmm. And, and kind of a whole uh, a view into the the domain of uh, Asgard and Jotunheim and so forth through through those eyes. As far as uh, uh, future work, lots of stuff uh, in the works. Some of it solo related, and some of it not. One one of the things I want to ask uh, for involvement with from the heathen community is I'd like to take this, as you said, you know, large and dense and complex uh, book that I've written and turn it into several different versions. I, I want to do a simplified version that would go well as an audiobook, which right now it wouldn't, you know, with a bunch of tables and references and complicated ideas, it, I think uh, it would just get lost as an audiobook. I, so I want to rewrite it for audiobook and, uh, and, and ebook. But I also would like to see what I could offer by working with some of the other heathen programs like 
Ethan's in recovery, like the clergy program, the esoteric program, the uh, in-reach program for uh, incarcerated heathens, um, to see, you know, what, what I could produce in the way of short and sweet material that would be useful to them and not overwhelming. So uh, what I'm planning to do is, is write some synopses or simplified versions and ask people to take a look at them and offer their thoughts and advice about how well that would work. And I'd particularly like to work with people in some of those other programs to see what I could offer that would be helpful for their program. So that's one set of uh, directions I'm going. And then I'm working on a second book, which is going to be focused on soul work um, as opposed to soul lore, you know, building on the soul lore, obviously, Mm -hmm. but getting getting into more practical applications and including what I just talked about, about how, how could it be applied I mean, I think there's a huge, a huge area of application in psychology and mental health as well, and also in spiritual health and spiritual counseling. And uh, so I, I'd like to develop in those more practical directions now, and I, I'd like to have input from other heathens on that. Wonderful. Well, that's going to keep you busy for a while. Yep. Probably at least another 20 years worth of work. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing that you have, quote unquote, retired. <laughs> yes, indeed. Indeed, I work full time on this now. Yeah. Uh, I'll have links in the show notes to the website, Heathen Solar, where people can go on and interact with your material and kind of get an idea of it while they're waiting for the book to come out. And I'll have links for where the book can be found. So such as lulu.com and also uh, it will be available on amazon.com as well. Winifred, thanks so much for all of this wonderful work. Could I make one more quick point here? Absolutely. Um, I think that the approach that I used in exploring uh, the heathen souls could be useful for other um, historically based modern paganism uh, branches, um, and and it would be it might be nice to just uh, point that out here on this on this podcast. This you know that I've taken a linguistic approach and a shamanistic approach and so forth, and and um, if they're interested in exploring their own soul traditions, uh, uh, you know, for example, in the Greek or the Baltic or the Celtic or, you know, Slavic branches, you know, they might be able to uh, find some useful techniques in my work. Oh, wonderful. Yes, that's a great thing to point out. Thanks again. Thank you. And thank you so much for your uh, gifts of the weird. That's a very uh, good service to the heathen community. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. Thank you for listening. Please have a look at the show notes for links and well, notes. Podcast is available from Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and other podcast catchers. Feedback and reviews are greatly appreciated. Please follow me on Instagram and Twitter at, at @weirdgifts1 and on Facebook at, at @gifts of the weird and email me at giftsoftheweird.com. Thanks and have a great day.